If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn back into the book of Zechariah again. There we go. Zechariah, we're going to be in chapter 3 today, continuing our series. If you remember a couple weeks ago when we began this series, we talked about how at the end, this, this vision of the prophecy here in Zechariah comes at the end of the 70-year exile of the Jews to Babylon. And here, Zechariah is proclaiming, and in chapter 1 we saw how he stood up and he proclaimed the words of God to the Israeli people, go home. It's time to have been comfortable in Babylon. Things may not be the way you want them to be, but there's a place I have for you that's better than this. Go back home. Hence the title for this whole series, Go Home. For God is calling his people back to himself to help them remember and reclaim their position in him, to remember who they are in Christ, to remember, at that time it wasn't Christ, but to remember who they are as Jehovah's children, Yahweh's children. And then in chapter 2 last week, we looked at how God not only called them home, but he said, I want you also to draw near to me. Draw near to me. Come near to the throne of God. Submit yourself to me. Come once again and remember who you are. But one of the problems when you draw near to God is reveals all the dark spots in your life, right? It reveals all those hidden areas in your life that you, you hide from even your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your parents. You think all those things, it's just you, you've got this little secret area, but when you draw near to God, it all gets revealed. And then we don't feel so good anymore, do we? So here we are in chapter 3 today with this vision of Zechariah with the high priest before God. And he stands there with Satan, the accuser, reminding Joshua, the high priest, of his guilt, reminding him of all of the bad that they had done. Remember, the Israelites are just coming out of 70 years of exile where they've been disciplined by God for 70 years because of hundreds of years of disobedience prior to that. His mercy extended way beyond where it needed to be. We have a joke in my family, in our family, where each of our girls, there's a line in our family where if, if they cross that line, they get in trouble. That's when the discipline starts. For some of our girls, they start closer to that line than others, they think. Israel started way back, hundreds of years, and they slowly creeped up to that line, right? They didn't just all of a sudden one day step over and go, oh, we're being disciplined, what's going on? They slowly crept in God's grace and his mercy, extended so long, and finally he came in and lowered the hammer and the boom on them. But now he says, go home. So as we look today, we're going to look really at how God has taken that guilt. There's probably a lot of guilt there in their lives from looking back. And Satan wants to remind them of all the things they've done wrong, all the ways they had abandoned God, they've abandoned his love, abandoned his teachings. And he wants to always keep that before them so they always feel guilty. So we're going to look at today here in Zechariah chapter 3, how God is stripping away that guilt from us. Satan wants it to remain. He wants us to have an 
unbiblical view of our guilt, an unbiblical view of God's forgiveness, an unbiblical view of what God has done on our behalf to keep us in bondage and keep us discouraged so we can't accomplish the mission he's got for us. And what's his mission? His mission is for us to go and make disciples of all nations. His mission is for us to go help those who are far away from God draw near to him again, right? We talked about that last week. And if we are stay so discouraged, we stay frustrated, we stay, stay in bondage over our past mistakes that we've all made. Even your pastor has made many mistakes. And Satan is always trying to bring them up again, over and over again, to remind me of how I failed God so many times. How I failed my family. I failed my church and how I failed my community. Constantly, the battle for my mind is there. But looking at this today, reminded that God's forgiveness is real. And that's what I want you to come away as we embrace the forgiveness of God today. Have we messed up? Yes. Are we going to continue to mess up? Oh, yes. But the forgiveness of God is there. And we don't need to feel unbiblical about our past. You know, there's a popular notion in society today that Satan is not a real person, a real being, that he's just some red demon-looking creature with horns and a tail and a pitchfork, or maybe he looks really good. I was talking with a guy last night that he, he's watched the, the show on Netflix, I guess, called Lucifer. I've never seen it. And that's one of the most popular shows out there right now on Netflix. I'm like, really? Or maybe we view... Satan or Lucifer is just this ethereal spirit that doesn't really have an impact or maybe we see him under every rock and behind every tree trying to come out and get you. As we look, as, as, as we did last week, we need to look biblically at some of these issues and not let popular culture determine and define for us some of these concepts. It's not just a state of mind. In fact, we're going to look today and see him as a very real being. And his purpose is to lead the world away from worship of the one true God and to accuse us before God. To make God feel bad if it's at all possible. <laughs> see God, look at this person over here like you did with Job, right? We don't need to be obsessed for, by, by him or see him under every rock like I mentioned a minute ago. But we do not also need not need to be ignorant about his plan and purpose in this world and his schemes and trying to take advantage of us. He is real. In Hebrew, his name literally Satan means the accuser or the adversary or the overcomer. It's a very accurate representation of the real being that appears here throughout scripture. Almost like a prosecuting attorney, accusing the brethren, accusing those around us to God, like he did with Job. Or trying to distract from his mission as he did with Jesus in the wilderness. And here in Zechariah chapter 3, we see first of all where God puts Satan on notice. God puts Satan on notice here at the beginning of this chapter. Kind of calls him out. Read with me what it says here in chapter verses 1 and 2. It says, then he, this is the vision of Zechariah, says, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, 
the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Satan is there trying to accuse Joshua and accuse the nation of Israel of their past sins, reminding God of what the Israelites had done and reminding Israel of what they had done. And here, Satan is just flat out rebuked by God. I love it. Puts him in his place. Let's him know, yes, you have a plan and the purpose and God's plan, purpose for redeeming the world. Satan, you actually have a plan. You're here trying to accuse people and draw them away. But in your efforts, you're actually going to do more to draw people to God than away from him. He's like a little aroaring lion, the Bible says. Going out seeking who he may devour. He makes a lot of noise. Makes a lot of accusations. And yet, that noise only makes a difference to us if we listen to it. How many times have we listened to those accusations of Satan as he, he brings back into our mind those memories, those things that we did when we were teenagers or, or in elementary school or in college, and we regret, we look, oh, I can't believe I did that, or I can't believe I said that, or I can't believe I went to that place, and how can I really be used by God because this has been weighing on my mind? And you've never really let it go and let God step in. We need to understand that Satan wants to deceive us regarding our guilt, but God wants to set us free of the truth. Satan is there to deceive us and to keep us bogged down. God wants to free us with the truth that we find in God's Word. There's a story of a man, he went to a a, re a restaurant one time, he walked into the restaurant, sat down at this table, and asked the server for a Coke, and the server came over and brought him a Coke, and the guy looks at it, looks at the server, and goes, boosh, right in his face. It's like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, try I'm trying to overcome, I have this compulsion, whenever somebody brings me a drink, I have this compulsion to try to, to throw, throw it right back in their face again, but I'm trying to overcome that, so would you bring me another Coke? Waiter, of course, being a good waiter, brings him another Coke. Guy looks at it, whoosh, right in his face. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I have so, I feel so guilty. I've got to leave. i got to go get some therapy, go get some treatment. He goes away for 90 days, goes to get therapy, goes to get treatment. And he comes back after 90 days. And he comes into that same restaurant and he sits down at his chair and, and he gets the same waiter again. And the waiter walks up and says, what can I, what can I bring you to? Wait, you were that guy last time. Threw the coke in my face. Yes, but you see, sir, I've gone to therapy. I've now been fixed. I've been healed. I've gone to therapy for 90 days. And I, I'm now, I don't have the same problem again. So would you please bring me a coke? Well, if you've been fixed, I'll go and bring you a coke, the waiter says. He comes over and brings the guy a coke. And the guy looks at the coke, looks at the waiter. Whoosh, right back in his face again. Wait, I thought you said you were fixed. Yeah, that's it. I have fixed. I don't feel guilty about it any longer. <laughs> There's a difference between feeling guilty and being guilty, is it not? <laughs> feeling guilty and being guilty. And the feelings that we have will change based on our understanding of Scripture and how we view our past. 
how we view our sin, how we view those around us. See, God comes along and he wants to strip us of that guilt so that we can move forward in power, embracing the forgiveness that he offers to us. So only through Jesus can, can God deliver us from both being guilty and feeling guilty. Only through Jesus can that happen. We can go throughout our whole life and feel guilty and yet have, have already experienced the frontal forgiveness of, from Christ for our sins. But we can live our lives for 50, 60, 70 years and still feel guilty for what we did when we were younger. Or you can live your whole life and think, hey, I feel good, I don't feel guilty. And yet still be guilty in God's eyes because you've never asked him to forgive you of your sins, never submitted yourself to his lordship and authority in your life. So we're going to look at some of these principles today. And how Satan says one thing, yet God wants us to believe another. Satan says one thing about our guilt, and God wants us to believe another thing about our guilt. Took it the first one this morning. Satan wants us to feel hopeless. God wants us to feel sorrowful. Satan wants us to feel hopeless in your guilt and in your sin. God wants us to feel sorrowful over it. Verses 1 and 2, again, we see the vision of Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, standing, getting ready to do his job, standing in the presence of God, as Matthew is a mediator over Israel, doing what he was supposed to do. And we also see Satan doing his job. He's accusing, standing before God as well, accusing Israel for their past. Just like he tries to do for us as well, reminding us of our past. I love what Carmen said one time, the singer Carmen. When Satan reminds you of your past, you should remind him of his future. He has a place of dark torment waiting for him in the future. And he wants to drag as many people down to be as miserable as he's going to be with him. Satan in this, in this passage, his nature is to malign and attack God by slandering and accusing the people of God. That's his purpose. That's what he does, the accuser. He wants to malign and slander God. God, how, look at these people that you created. Look at these people that you died for. Look at these people that you've given everything for. They don't even come back and honor you and worship you. They're still living and living life the way they want to live. He's pointing to Joshua's guilt here. Represented by Joshua's filthy clothes we're going to read about in a second. How Joshua stands before God filthy and disgusting and nasty. And he's basically saying, there's no hope for him. He's guilty. He can't serve you. You ever feel that way? As God's child? We look at our sin. We look at the ways we've messed up. Maybe on our job or our family and ministry. And we think, how can I continue to serve God? I'm not even fit to teach a Bible study. I'm not even fit to come and serve. I'm not even fit to come and make coffee on Sunday mornings. I can't serve God because, man, I've just come so far. That's what Satan wants you to believe. That sense of hopelessness. That you've done so much wrong that God can't forgive you. You've done so much that God can't overlook and pardon you for those sins. You've done so much. You have no value to God at all. 
That's how evil will have you believe. Hopeless. And he speaks those lives over and over and over and over again to us. And sometimes if we listen, we begin to believe it. We begin to believe those lies. He says, guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. And we listen to that. Instead of God's words to us, he says, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. In John 8, 44, we see Satan's character. How he's the father of lies. He says, you are the father. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That's who Satan is. His very essence, his very being, he is the father of lies. He does not tell the truth. He twists the truth. He tries to take a little bit of scripture, a little bit of truth, and he adds a whole lot of falsehood to it, and we believe it. The world believes it. Because there's a little bit of truth in there, but they don't see all the falsehood that's attached. That's his character. That's exactly who he is. Understand that about him. And don't listen to his voice. On the other side, we have Joshua, the high priest, Yeshua mediating on behalf of Israel and Jesus Christ mediating on our behalf, our great high priest mediating for us letting us know how much God loves us, how much he does for us and Satan is still accusing see when we sin, God's desire for us is to feel sorrow over that sin so that we might ultimately turn from that sin, it's not wrong to look at our sin and go Man, God, I've let you down again. And feel bad about it for a short time. As long as that emotion, that feeling of sorrow helps you in the long run to overcome that sin and cast it out of your life and just begin coming back again, seeking a life of holiness before God. That is our goal. That's our plan. That's what we should be about. Am I living my life in such a way that God is honored with the way I, with how I speak, how I live, how I talk, how I eat, how I walk throughout my life? Is he honored in everything? I love here also when it talks about God rebuking Satan because I let us know that they are not on equal terms. They are not two sides of the same coin. They're not the light side and the dark side of the force. God is much more powerful. And when God rebuked Satan, Satan had to shut up. Satan had to sit down. Satan had to take a back seat and go, yeah, okay. And you see him cowering before the words of God. God didn't have to pull out the big stick and smack him. He said, stop. Stop it. And say that to sit down. At the same time, God doesn't justify and didn't justify Israel's behavior. I mean, they went into exile for 70 years. They were disciplined for 70 years. After decades and decades and centuries of disobedience to God, his patience with them finally ran thin. He sent them into exile and disciplined them. But then he says he, he's going to pluck them out. He's, as an ember, plucks them out of the fire. 
Their discipline is done. He reaches down and plucks them out of the fire and brings them back to the promised land. You feel like you've been in exile from God or he doesn't hear you? Maybe your prayers go, they stop at the ceiling. You feel like, God, are you really there? I think the Israelites felt that way for 70 years. You're like, God, do you not see what we're going through? We're 400 years in, in, as slaves in, in Egypt, right? God, we're crying out to you. God, what's going on? God, do you even hear our voice? Are you real? Are you really there? Or is this voice that's been speaking to me Tell me how you've abandoned us, but you're not real. Is that really true? We're reminded in Hebrews chapter 12 and 2 Corinthians 7 that God will discipline his children to bring about the holy life that he desires to see in us. He will discipline us. It's a fact. He will discipline us. And that discipline is not always fun. But understand, just as we discipline our children when they're little and they get out of line and we have to bring them back in line, it's not because we enjoy the discipline. We don't enjoy ripping off our belt. You don't enjoy putting them in, 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 in time out. You don't enjoy grounding them from certain things. You don't enjoy the discipline that has to take place as you're trying to instill character and values in your children. As parents, we don't enjoy that. God doesn't enjoy either disciplining us, but he's trying to bring us around to the life that he desires to see in us. And he's going to orchestrate events around us that bring us into his, his will to allow us to experience his holiness, to allow us to experience what it means to live a personal holy life ourselves. See, God loves us too much to allow us to continue in sin and just feel good about it. He loves you too much to allow you just to continue in sin. We are set up to be an example in this world. As Israel was set up to be an example in their community, in their region, where, where they were set up there in the promised land. We are there to be an example and a light to the community around us. And he will do what it takes to bring us about that. Secondly, Satan wants us to feel innocent when we are guilty. He wants us to feel innocent when we are guilty. Whereas God wants us to feel guilty when you're guilty. Right? Here in, in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, it says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove those filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I love it. I love that verse. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And he said, let them put a clean, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with the garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. What great imagery in this passage. What awesome picture of what God is doing for his children and for you and I. See, Satan has two strategies here in dealing, in dealing with our guilt. One, he wants you to feel hopeless. And two, he wants you to feel innocent, like you haven't done anything wrong. Here, Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord, standing before God in his garments, his priestly garments. The Bible calls them filthy garments. 
And that's not just mustard stains and body odor. That's not just the way your clothes look after mowing the grass or working in the garden for the day. Literally, the word filthy means human excrement. As if he'd been covered and plastered with dung. Human feces. That's the way God viewed him. And yet Joshua stood there before God, ready to serve. Filthy. Thinking he was okay. Thinking he was ready to go. You ever wonder why, as a worship team, when you come up here, we pray before service on Sunday mornings? Because we're trying to cleanse our hearts. We're asking God to bless. We want to come and bring worship before the church with clean hearts and pure hearts, with pure motives. When we take communion at church, we ask you to examine your own life, examine your heart to make sure there's nothing between you and God. So that when you take communion, you take the Lord's Supper, you are presenting yourself as a, a sacrifice to God. You're presenting yourself as this holy and blameless sacrifice to God. Say, God, here I am. Take me, use me just as you want. We can't come before God thinking that we're okay. That's the way Joshua viewed. He stood there before God filthy, thinking he was okay. First John chapter 1, verse 8, 10 says, If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. See, when the truth of God's word is not in us, when we don't spend time in God's word, we are easy prey for Satan's deceptions. We're easy prey for him to come along because we were stopped putting the word of God into our minds. We stopped, stopped putting the truth into our brains. We stopped spending time in his word. And when we stopped doing that, the little voice from Satan is so easy to listen to. It's okay. You're okay. This is just a little white lie. It's just a little sin. It's all right. It's all for the good. There is no such thing as a good sin. There is no such thing as a good sin. Big sin, little sin in our own mind, in our own eyes. In God's eyes, it's all the same. That word, that thought, that deed, a thing you misspoke this week, it's all the same to God. It says Joshua stood there before God representing the people. What happens to him next is a metaphor of God's grace and God's mercy on the Israelites and what God wants to do for us. See, he stood there before the angel of the Lord. He stood there literally before the pre-incarnate Christ. And when you see the angel of the Lord, and the Lord is in all caps in Scripture, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. That is Jesus Christ before his being born into this world as a little babe. This is Christ in the world presenting himself to his people. He's standing there, the angel of the Lord presenting himself and sees Joshua dirty and filthy and nasty. And what does he say? He says, take those clothes off him. Let's get those off him. 
in Hebrew, the, the intimation here, the representation that's meant there, is almost as if Jesus is answering a question. If the angel Lord is answering a question, as if Joshua said, can you remove these things from me, please? Can you, I'm standing before God. Here's the God of the universe in all of his glory. And Joshua stands there and recognizes all of a sudden when Satan is rebuked, that he's standing there filthy before God. And it's like he says, God, can you cleanse me? Can you take these filthy rags off of me? I'm embarrassed to stand here before you in this fashion. Joshua had to recognize his filthiness. He had to recognize his position as he stood there before God in clothes that were filthy and nasty. See, when we stand before God, how can we not be aware of our sin? How can we not be aware of our filth? If you ever spend time away from God's word, or spend time away from the, the family of God, or spend time away from God at all, and then you come back, it's, it's really difficult that first time to come back to God, isn't it? You're there and you say, okay, I'm going to pick up my Bible, or I'm going to spend time with God's word, and I'm going to pray. And all your, in, in this attitude and this spirit before holy God, and all of that filth and that sin that's been bundled up in your own life just boils to the surface. And it's hard. It's embarrassing. It's tough to go to God and say, God, I need you to change my clothes. I need you to fix me. I need to get rid of these things. That sense of guilt that is there because we've abandoned God, because we've abandoned our commitment to him. But then we see God do what Joshua could never do, right? Joshua says, please take this off of me. And we see God does what Joshua could never do. He orders all those contaminated clothes removed. He orders them all removed so that Joshua's standing there naked before God in all of his glory, waiting for something to happen. And then some of the greatest words ever spoken where God said, the angel of the Lord says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I will clothe you with the pure clothes that you need. I will give you, I will do for you, I will take that sin away. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Just like Jesus told the lame man, when he says, take up your bed and walk, what did he do before that? He says, your sins are forgiven. But to show you Pharisees and you others who are around there that the Son of Man has the ability to forgive sins, I'll also do what is not possible for you. And I'll ask this man to take up his bed and walk, because which is more difficult in your mind? To tell the lame man to get up and walk. And if I can do that, I can do this. He says, take up your bed and walk. Let your sins be forgiven. He takes off those dirty, filthy, nasty clothes that Joshua had on presenting himself to God. These new clothes that Jesus puts on him that represent the purity and holiness of his forgiveness. As Joshua now stands before the God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords, presents himself as he should have been presenting himself, representing Israel, pure. And then, 
Zechariah tells them to take the turban of God, take the turban and put it back on his head. Joshua is now restored to service. He puts on the new clothes and now he's given the turban to go back on his head, restored to service again as the high priest of Israel. And on that turban, there's a plate. There's a, there's a, there's a gold band for the next slide. There's a gold band there. And, and it refers back to Exodus 28, where he says, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. See, when the high priest presents himself to God, he presents himself as that he's been cleansed. And he says, I am holy to the Lord. I have been cleansed of all of my sin. I've done all that needs to be done. And I'm now representing the nation of Israel to God. And asking God to do a work through me on their behalf. As our high priest presents himself to God on our behalf, cleansed of all of our sin, he took all of our sin on his own shoulders, forgave us of our sins, then cast them as far as the east is from the west. And he presents himself to God and says, God, I'm still holy to you, holy to the Lord. The great high priest. Jesus. And Joshua stood there once again, completely cleansed. Completely cleansed. Not feeling innocent any longer, understanding his guilt, but getting it taken care of. It's interesting, too, to hear that we see that God's grace, his forgiveness, his cleansing, came before the call to obedience. Before he was restored to the service that he was to do, God cleansed him. God's grace overshadowed him. God, God's grace and his mercy came in and did for to Joshua. Made him clean again before he restored him into service of God. Grace empowers works. Works do not empower grace. God's grace in our lives empowers us to go and do things for God that we cannot do ourselves. We don't go do things for God and say, God, look how great I am. God steps in and does a work in our lives first, and then we go out and we do things for God, not pointing to ourselves, but pointing to Almighty God. That's what happens when we let you feel guilty because you are guilty. You don't present yourself as innocent. Lastly, Satan wants us to feel guilty when we are forgiven. God wants us to feel forgiven when we're forgiven. <laughs> Satan wants us to always be hopeless. He wants us to feel innocent. He wants us to feel guilty. God wants us to think biblically. When you're forgiven, you're forgiven. There's no more guilt that should be there. There's no more feeling guilty. Do you understand that God's forgiveness is complete and whole 100% done? Look in verse 6 and 7. It says, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Look at those if-then conditions that are right there. The first one involves his obedience. It says, If you walk in my ways, God's calling to Joshua was to pursue a life of personal righteousness now that he was forgiven. You continue to walk in my ways. I've made you clean. Continue to walk in it. I've made you clean. You've been forgiven. Those filthy rags are gone. Don't get dirty again. Go and sin no 
more. How many times do we hear Jesus say that? Or read about Jesus saying that in Scripture? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. The woman caught in adultery, the man who raised up, the, those who were healed of their leprosy, go and sin no more. You've now been cleansed. Go and live like it. Walk in my ways. The second condition is this. It involves his faithfulness. It says, if you keep my instructions, you keep my charge. The Lord's instructions speak of Joshua's duty as the high priest to fulfill the requirements of that office. We are priests of God in our own right. In Hebrews, it talks about how we are the priesthood of the believer, how we can stand before God as his children, interceding on behalf of others, praying for them, earnestly yearning for them, going to God on their behalf, say, God, help this person. God, cleanse this person. God, heal this person. We don't no longer have to go through another priest, another person to reach the Father. We are able to go directly to God because of what our high priest, Jesus, has done on our behalf. We have a duty to also, like Joshua, walk in God's ways and walk in his instructions. Last week we were reminded to draw near to God and he would draw near to us. Now the expectation is after drawing near to God, our old ways are going to change. The expectation is that we're not going to be the same person. You cannot stand before God and let him speak into your life, have him heal you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and then go back to wallowing in the mud again. Or shouldn't. See, God promises Joshua that he's going to gain leadership among God's people, authority over the temple, and access to God again because he allowed God to cleanse him. He allowed God to forgive him. Satan wants Joshua to stay in his guilt. He wants Joshua to stay right where he is and to live in that guilt, to live in his filthiness, to wallow in the pit of despair and never feel the joy of God's forgiveness. That's where Satan wants to keep us. He's going to bring up our past. He's going to bring up our failures. He's going to bring up our weaknesses. He's going to bring in people to discourage us. He's going to just bring up and stir up within us our own self-doubt. He's the master of that. We have to see ourselves as God sees us. Cleansed, pure, forgiven. Here in the final couple of verses, you see these images of that. As God says, Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I bring you my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of, on this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Verse 8 speaks of the branch, the Messiah, the servant. The word for Messiah. The image that's there is the branch. Joshua's name, we, we use the name Jesus in English and in Greek. 
His name was more likely Joshua in Scripture, the Hebrew word. Yeshua, the Messiah, the one that we worship, the one who cleanses of all of our sins, the servant, the branch. You see him also here in verse 9 as the stone, the cornerstone, and Jesus is our cornerstone. He is the one who receives rock. He's the one who holds us secure. He's the one who holds us fast. He's the foundation upon which our whole faith is based. Our theology, our belief system, everything is grounded in him and on him. And on his work on our behalf. The seven eyes possibly refers to the wisdom of the Messiah, that perfect wisdom of the Messiah who sees all, knows all, and he judges with perfection, with righteousness. The inscription on there that I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day talks about the complete and utter cleansing of God's people. Just like that. You know that it doesn't take a lifetime for us to be cleansed. It doesn't, the moment that we bowed our knee and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're cleansed at that moment. It doesn't take a lifetime of work to work your way into cleansing. You were cleansed at that moment. The power of God is such that it does not take anything on our behalf to be cleansed. He says in verse 10, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor and come under his vine, under his fig tree, and experience ultimate peace. Ultimate peace is sitting there under the tree, under the vine, enjoying the peace of God that only he can bring. Enjoying the blessings and the harmony with the Lord. See, through the Messiah, through Jesus, you have the servant, the branch, the stone, that God has made a way for his people to overcome the accusations of Satan. And the commendation, condemnation of sin in our lives. Outside of New York City, outside of New York City, there's a cemetery. And in that cemetery, there's a small tombstone. There's no name on the tombstone, there's no dates on the tombstone. There's just one simple word that says forgive. Whoever is buried there understood, understood what it meant to experience the forgiveness of God. Nothing else needed to be said. Simply forgiven. Today as we finish up How do you view yourself before God? How do you view your sin? Do you embrace the forgiveness of you for you embrace the forgiveness that God offers? And not going through this life feeling guilty for your past? We continue to mess up, yes. And we continue to be forgiven over and over and over and over again. When you stand before God, and you have those filthy rags as we, we continue to sin. When you stand before God, does it give this desire, this passion to hide your face and to hide yourself 
Much like Adam and Eve in the garden, after they ate of the fruit of the tree that God told them not to eat of. And then they go walking through the garden, and the Bible says they could hear God walking in the midst of the garden. What did they do? They hid themselves. They hid themselves because they did not want God to see their sin. How do you react when you stay before God? Do you say, I'm, I'm good, I'm okay. I'm better than Mike. I'm better than Joe. I'm better, much better than Anissa. How do you view yourself when you stand before God? Or do you stand there and go, God, I'm a filthy, I'm full of human feces on my clothes. Don't even look at me. I'm not worthy of your gaze. Then you let him cleanse you again. Maybe this morning, this morning as Karis comes to lead us in the final song, I'm happy to just sit in your chairs and contemplate and pray and ask God to deal with you right where you are, with your sin, with your clothes, with wherever God is impressing upon you. I don't know whether it's, you need to get right with God, whether you need to say, God, I've got these dirty, filthy, stinking rags on my body and I need to get, get cleansed from, by you again. I need to have a, a complete cleansing again. I need to come before you and be washed. I don't know if you're watching online right now and you're saying, I've never been cleansed even the first time. I need to have the forgiveness of God to experience the forgiveness of God for the very first time. I need to know and understand what it means to be able to enjoy and experience that forgiveness. Wherever you are, God's willing to hear your voice right now. Hear your prayer right now. As you come to him and you embrace his forgiveness. You embrace his forgiveness. Not the false words of Satan, not the, the accuser of what he's trying to tell you that you're not good enough, that you can never do it, but you embrace God's forgiveness today. Tell you while you're right where you are, bow your heads and close your eyes. Here in this room and online, take the next couple minutes as cares plays. And just commit to God what it is he's laying in your heart. 